Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Christmas is coming, and they're coming too, bringing some gifts and some baggage for you. One day, two day, three days or more. How do we survive those we adore? Your boss, whose idea of a holiday gift is making you work a long double shift. Your date for mom's dinner, who still lives at home and is not well acquainted with hard work or a comb. Perhaps it's your spouse who's on your last nerve, and you'd like to give them just what they deserve. Regifting that sweater which you know is too small, or coal in the stocking, or maybe nothing at all. Whomever the problem, whatever the reason, we all want to care for others this season. Yet friends and family, much loved though they be, can create much drama and much misery. What's to be done with all the confusion? Might we suggest an unsettling solution? So we're in week two of a series called The Unsettling Solution for Just About Everything. And we're heading into a season that oftentimes we think, oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but sometimes we also feel like it's the most stressful time of the year. It's the time of season where, you know, sometimes we would rather just hide away from all the things we got to do, all the, the people that come to visit. We're like, do, you, do I really have to hop in the car and drive that long and have the road trip cramped together with the family? See, sometimes... We are looking for a solution to a problem. And so today we are on week two of this series called The Unsettling Solution. And if you heard last week, we started, we kicked it off, and this series is based on the work of a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley. So you're going to see his name up top on the screen when I quote him a few times. But before we jump to this solution that we're going to talk about grace today, I want to start with something that that I think is, is a little simplistic, but it's this theory that I have that's kind of underneath this whole series. And that theory is this, that I think somewhere deep down, everyone wants Christianity to be true. Now, maybe it's not the version of Christianity you grew up with. Maybe it's, it's not the way that people treated you. Maybe it's not what you think of, of the church today. But the whole idea of what's underneath Christianity, of who Jesus is, the message of Christ, we look at that and think, yeah, wouldn't I want that to be true? And one of the things that we sometimes can help us remember this is there's actually a big difference between I don't believe it's true and I don't want it to be true. Because you could say, I don't believe that Christianity is true, but at the same time still say, but wouldn't it be nice if it was? Wouldn't it be nice if this person named Jesus, if he actually really was who he said he was? What if his teachings really were true? What if what he said about a path to God, what if what he said about love, what if what he said about forgiveness was true? Wouldn't that be great to be able to believe that version of Christianity? Wouldn't it be great to believe in that without all the baggage and without all the issues and without everything that comes along with it sometimes? See, that's what we're digging into today, is we're digging into this reason why we want Christianity to be true. We're digging into this one little piece, this one little small, seems so simple to understand, but it's so big and far-reaching in how it impacts everything about our faith. And that thing is grace. And last week, we introduced this definition for grace that we're working with for this series of saying that grace is simply undeserved, unearned, and unearnable favor. 
And when I say favor, I'm not talking about the like, I do something for you and then you do something back for me or I owe you one. That's actually not the definition of favor. Favor is this unmerited, undeserved, unearned, someone giving you what you don't deserve, someone giving you care that you don't deserve, someone giving you a second chance that you haven't earned. It's someone unconditionally saying, here, this is something good for you that I want to give to you. And this piece of grace is underneath our faith. This piece of grace that everything we have, everything that that Jesus is, everything that our, our faith is, we haven't deserved it, we haven't earned it, but it's something that God freely gives to us. It is favor from God. And in fact, when we're on the receiving end of grace, when we've done something, when, when our guilt exposes or we know we've harmed someone or hurt them, and they have every right to punish us for us, but instead they forgive us. When we receive grace, it is extraordinarily refreshing. Sometimes we actually don't know that's what we wanted so badly until the moment it's been extended and given to us. But on the flip side, when grace is required of us, we find it extraordinarily disturbing because it goes against how we naturally feel. It goes against our human instinct to say, no, I'm going to show you favor when I know you don't deserve it. I'm going to show you favor when you've hurt me. I'm going to show favor when, you know, you did that thing that you didn't think was going to hurt me, but it did hurt me, but I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. See, when grace is applied correctly, it solves just about everything. Every family conflict that could come up through Christmas, every issue with your boss or your coworkers, every issue with your kids, when grace is correctly applied, it can solve just about everything. And so last week, we looked at opportunities where when Jesus came and how he showed grace and truth. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. And we start off by looking at one of the Gospels. And in our New Testament, there's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to look at three out of the four of those uh, at different points this morning. But John was the last one who wrote his. And he was one of Jesus' disciples. And as he's sitting down to write the story of Jesus from his perspective, he starts with these 18 verses that we call the prologue. And he's setting up the whole story he's about to tell you because he knows it's just too fantastical. It's too amazing. You're not going to want to believe it. Because we look at it and we say, how could this be? How could someone really be that but jesus is and so john starts off with saying this he says in verse 14 he says so the word and he's borrowing this greek term for something that brings life and meaning and purpose into the world he says so the word meaning jesus he's using this this kind of coded language so jesus became human and made his home among us god himself stepped into the world to be with us he was full of grace and truth both full, grace and truth. Now, when we try to live out grace and truth, we often feel like we're trying to balance them, like, well, I can be truthful in this area, but I'll be gracious in this area. But the truth is, when we try to balance grace and truth, we end up with neither one. Because we don't end up with, with full truth, we don't end up with full grace, we end up somewhere in the middle that's really neither of both. But Jesus was able to be all grace, all truth, all the time. And so last week we looked at these times when Jesus confronted the guilt and sin and things that separated people from God and how he responded not with condemnation, but with grace. 
But when Jesus showed grace, and we started to see this last week, and this is what we're going to dig on today, is when Jesus showed grace, it unsettled the people around him. They got upset with him because when we see grace happen, it does something to us that we often don't like. And we're going to dig into that together today. And we're going to do that by starting with this story that comes from Luke's account of Jesus' life. Now, Luke wasn't an eyewitness himself, but he was commissioned to go and speak to as many eyewitnesses of Jesus as he could and compile all of their accounts together into this story about who Jesus is. And so Luke actually wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts, which is everything that happened then next after Jesus, how the church started. But we're going to find ourselves in Luke 19, as Jesus comes to a town named Jericho. And he comes to this place called Jericho, and he made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, when Luke writes this, he's actually not being congratulatory. He's not saying, man, this guy worked hard for himself. He was able to build up a business or build up something and become rich. No, he was the chief tax collector. Now, that meant he bought the contract from Rome to collect taxes from this whole region around Jericho, and he actually set up a whole network of tax collectors. Now, tax collectors weren't paid a salary. In fact, you just raised extra taxes and then skimmed off whatever you wanted off the top and lined your own pocket with that. And as long as you made the amount that Rome expected to arrive every month, you could do whatever you wanted. It was government-sanctioned robbery. That's essentially the way their tax system worked. They didn't have a CRA to keep us accountable to things. So when Luke writes this, he had become very rich. The undertone of that statement is he had become very rich on the backs of everyone else. This man was despised. He may not have been the person who invented the pyramid scheme, but he's the first one in the Bible who gets mentioned because he created a pyramid scheme and was profiting off it hugely. So Jesus is coming, and there's this man named Zacchaeus. And what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus wants to get a look at Jesus. He wants to see what this is all about. But he was too short to see over the crowd, and he couldn't push his way through. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road because Jesus was going to pass that way. He runs up ahead, climbs a tree. How often do you see a grown man climb a tree? Maybe we should climb trees more often, but it's kind of like, we, we're like, if I fall, I don't bounce anymore. Like, I don't heal the way my kids do, you know? I, I'm going to be on the couch for a couple of weeks if I climb a tree and fall. See, we, we're scared. But Zacchaeus overcame that. He climbed the tree and was waiting for Jesus to pass by because he just wanted a look at Jesus to see this man that everyone's talking about, that's been changing this whole area and everyone's talking about Jesus. So when Jesus comes by, he looks up at Zacchaeus, calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. Jesus says, come down out of the tree. Now, what does everyone in the crowd immediately think? Now, this isn't written in there, but but from what we know about Zacchaeus, what we know about the culture, what we know about tax collectors, everyone's thinking, all right, he's going to get it. Jesus is going to tell him, you have sinned. You have guilt. You have stolen. You need to give back the money that you have taken from people. Everyone in the crowd is thinking that. Like, finally, this guy that we just all want to take out behind the stable and beat the daylights out of him, 
Jesus is going to nail him to the wall for it. That's what they're thinking. That's what they're hoping for. Now, meanwhile, the disciples are probably stepping back, and Peter kind of nudges John and goes, here we go again. This is happening again. Are we ready for this? I don't know, man. All right, we just got to go through it. This is going to happen. So Jesus calls down Zacchaeus, and what does he say to him? He says, I must be a guest in your home today. Not at all what the people wanted to hear. Not at all what the disciples wanted to hear, because they're like, oh, great, this is happening again. We're going to go dine with the worst people in the region, because that's what this guy Jesus does. So Zacchaeus is excited about this. He says, yeah, come on, I'm going to prepare my place. We're going to have a big party. We're going to have fun. This is going to be a night to remember. This is going to be legendary. And so the people, though, are displeased. He says, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. See, when Jesus encounters someone who is outcast, you know, he's wealthy because of his profession, but he is an outcast from their whole society. He is likely the most hated person in that whole region. Who does Jesus pick to spend time with? He chooses the person that everyone else has rejected. Jesus chooses Zacchaeus and says, I must dine in your home tonight. And everyone is upset. Everyone except for Zacchaeus and his friends. And the disciples are kind of, here we go again. This is going to happen. See, when Jesus did that, we think the right response would be the all-truth response. We think the right response would be, Jesus needs to call out Zacchaeus for his sin, needs to call him out for his thievery, needs to call him to start making amends, to pay restitution, to pay restoration, to set things back in balance. But what Jesus does instead, and this is the piece of grace, he shows favor and says, I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to pick the outcast. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to spend time. They're going to spend time talking. They're going to spend time answering questions. And Jesus has a goal with this. Because Jesus' purpose and his goal is to reveal who God is. His purpose is to draw the people who are far away close to God. And so who does Jesus pick? He picks the person that everyone would consider to be the furthest from God in Jericho. And Jesus got a lot of flack for this. He got questioned about this often. And so we're going to jump over to Matthew's gospel. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and Matthew was also a tax collector. Jesus had a tax collector with him. So like Matthew, at least, should have been the one to be like, yeah, 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 let's, let's, let's go to Zacchaeus' house. I don't know, we don't know what Matthew thought about that exactly. But when Jesus had people listening, he often told his message in a parable. And a parable is a story with a punchline. Sometimes they're comedic, and oftentimes we miss that in Scripture, how many jokes Jesus told, because we're about 2,000 years late to the party. We don't understand their context. But Jesus often told these stories in a parable form because they do something disarming to us. They actually somehow jump around our rational brain and get to our heart in a way that just telling, well, here's what you got to do, doesn't actually do it. And so Jesus as all these people around him, tells this story. And he always starts these stories this way. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage, one denarius, about three bucks worth of silver today, and he sent them out to work. 
That was a normal thing to happen. Oftentimes, people didn't have like a full-time job. You would go to the public square every morning and be like, hey, who's going to hire me today? What am I going to do to earn my daily wage today? Which landowner has some work to do that I can do to get a day's wage and get paid at the end of the day, take that money home, stop at the market, buy what you need, and that was life for the majority of people in the Middle East during this time. And so at about 9 o'clock in the morning, the landowner was passing back through the marketplace, and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay whatever was right at the end of the day. And so this second group of people go off to his vineyard to go to work. So they began to work in the vineyard at noon, and again at 3 o'clock he did the same thing, and then he went again back out at 5 o'clock, an hour to quitting time. And he found another group of people, and he says, hey, what are you doing here? And they say, well, no one hired us today, so we're just waiting around, hoping we, we get something. And so the landowner says, okay, go to my vineyard, go to work, I'll pay you what's right at the end of the day. So throughout the day, the landowner hired five different groups of workers to start at different times throughout the day to go and work his land. So that evening, the landowner tells the foreman, tells the boss, call all the workers in and pay them, but begin with the last workers who started. Begin with the group of people that only started work an hour ago. Now, this is the moment where everyone listening to Jesus would have leaned in a little bit and been like, where, where are you going with this? Because that's not the right way to do it. The right way in their culture was you always started with who started work first. They, all, they, they put in the full day. You start with them. But Jesus tells the story. He says, no, 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 no. We're starting with the ones who began last. So when those who were hired just an hour earlier, they were, and they were paid, they each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. You know, they're sitting there seeing, well, he paid the guys that did one hour of work. They're, they got a full day. We're, we're at least going to get two days worth of wage, right? Because we did way more than that. But as they go through each group, and they get to the people that he hired first, and he gives them one day's wage. Now, when they received that pay, how do you think they responded to that? Do you think they were happy? Would you be happy to see, you know, the new employee at work that, that rolls in, gets a wage way higher than everyone else? What's the deal with that? So when this first group received their pay, they protested to the owner. They said, those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. This is unfair. This isn't right. This isn't just. They could have had all kinds of words to say to the landowner about this. Why are we only getting one day's wage? And so the landowner answered one of them. He says, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. He says, you agreed to this. You agreed at 7 o'clock in the morning that you were going to work a full day for a day's wage. And now just because this other group that came in later, they got a full day's wage too, you suddenly think you're entitled to more? What's that about? So the landowner continues. He says, I wanted to pay the last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to a whole group of people trying to explain why he does some of the things he does, why the kingdom of heaven is the way it is. 
And he says this last piece, should you be jealous because I'm kind to someone else? I want to paraphrase that. I want to change the wording around to say the same thing in a different way. Because what the landowner is saying to this group of people, but really, it's Jesus saying this to a group of people that have been questioning him about his motives and why does he do what he does. This is the paraphrase. Are you resentful because I am generous? Are you resentful when you see someone else receive generosity that you did not receive? Does that make you upset when you see someone else receive favor that maybe you didn't receive when you needed it? See, this is what Jesus is getting at. God's generosity, the way that God treats us, is unsettling to us because we think it should be fair. We think it should be based on some sort of rules, on some sort of framework, on some sort of rubric, because that's how our minds work. We look for patterns. The foundation of all human learning is pattern recognition. And Jesus continually breaks the pattern. God continually breaks the pattern. And he goes on and he says this in the landowner's voice. He says, so those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first shall be last. He completely flips their whole system upside down with this statement. Because to us, when we see someone else receive generosity, when we see someone else receive grace, if we are really, really honest with ourselves, and it's difficult to be this honest with ourselves, are we happy about that? Or does part of us become jealous? Does part of us become envious? Does part of us become resentful of saying, that's unfair? Why did that person get what they receive? Why did that person get something that I didn't. See, the reason for that is the way we work is we always compare to determine what's fair. We always compare, what did that group get? What did this group get? What did you get? What did I get? And was it fair? But grace doesn't compare. Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. When God chooses to show grace, he is blowing the whole concept of fairness out the water. Because if we wanted fairness, well, what we would get would be something totally different. Because remember how Jesus started this parable. He started with this line that often when we read a parable, we we just skip over it because it's like this once upon a time. This is how the story starts. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like... He says, this is how things are in the way that God intends it to be. This is the way that my kingdom as it comes to earth will be lived out. This is how you, my followers, are to live and treat one another if you are my followers. That's what Jesus is saying. Every time you see this, for the kingdom of heaven is like, we need to start seeing that as this is how God intends it to be. Maybe it's not how it is now, but this is what God is trying to lead us towards. See, in the kingdom of heaven, this is what Jesus is getting at in all this, that that grace isn't fair, that though the last shall be first, the first shall be last. But in the kingdom of heaven, underneath the system, the way that God wants our world to be, the way that he is trying to make our world become, is to say this, in the kingdom of heaven, everyone is invited and everyone enters through the same door the same way. Every worker, regardless of how long they worked, when they accepted the job, 
They entered the vineyard the same way. They received the same pay on the way out. That is an unsettling way for the world to work. But that's exactly how Jesus works. That's exactly how grace works. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We cannot earn it even if we tried. But grace is freely given. It's freely given because of love. It's freely given because it's the way God intends for things to be. Last week, we talked about when our guilt convicts us. When something stands in the way, when we know we have wronged someone or we've offended someone or we've done something that bothered us. Grace is what we craved rather than the punishment that we deserved. And in fact, this gets even more unsettling for those of us who maybe grew up in church who say, you know what, I've been a Christian since I was, you know, prenatal essentially. Like my parents took me to church before I was born. I grew up in church. I never strayed from Jesus. There there should be something more that I get, right? I should get like a gold star for that, shouldn't I? Shouldn't I? I like pass sword drills in youth group and most of you have no idea who that is, what that is, and that's okay, you don't need to. But we can look at our own lives sometimes and say, shouldn't I get something better? Come on, Jesus, I've been with you this whole time. Shouldn't I get something more than the person who with one hour to go says, yeah, you really are God. You really are who you say you are. No, the kingdom of heaven, everyone is invited. And everyone enters the same door the same way. There's no side entrance. There's no back way around. There's no shortcut. Everyone enters the same way. And that's what Jesus came to do, was to point the way to this door. And what is this way? We're going to jump back to John's Gospel. One of the times when Jesus is, is having his last evening together with his disciples, before he's about to be executed. Because the religious leaders have been able to create enough charges that really have no merit, but they've been able to create enough of a public sway that they think they can do it this time and they can finally kill Jesus because they want to get rid of him because everything that Jesus is teaching is blowing apart their worldview. And so Jesus has this last evening with his followers, with his closest group of 12. And he's trying to explain and impart to them these last little pieces that he knows he wants to carry them and sustain their faith through the difficult times that are coming up. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Father except through me. And when we look at that statement, part of us feels unsettled. Why? Because that is an exclusive statement. That is a statement that says there's only one path to God. Period. End of story. No exceptions. And we look at that, and with our 20th century sensibilities, we say, well, that that doesn't seem tolerant. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem kind. What about all the other worldviews? What about all the other perspectives and religious beliefs? And what about all the other ways that we could think about something? See, that's our first response. But when we look at this deeper, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is actually a statement of radical inclusion. Jesus doesn't say only you of this genealogical background can come to the Father. He doesn't say only you who pray this certain way, only you who sing hymns instead of choruses or choruses instead of hymns or read this translation of the Bible can come to the Father. He does not say that at all. 
He just says, no one can come to the Father except through me. And in every one of Jesus' teachings, he talks about the door being open. He talks about there being a path. When he's telling that story of the landowner that we spent some time on, who's the landowner in the story? It's Jesus. Who are the people in the market? It's us. What is he inviting them into? To be workers in God's kingdom. What does he pay them with? A relationship. Because grace only exists in a relational context. God desires such a deep relationship with us so that he can show us his grace. See, when we look at our lives on its own, and this is where we were at last week, when we look at the things that convict us, when we look at the places where we have fallen short, where we've messed up, our lives are an equation that cannot be balanced. Every one of us has read in our ledger. Every one of us has something that would, under the, that would give a reason for us to say, well, if God really, if, if all he cares about is the rules, if all he cares about is fairness, well, we're out. Every one of us can say that. We all have read in our ledger. It's an equation that no matter how much we try to balance it, we can't. We could say, well, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to give more. And eventually things will stack up on that side of the equation and it will tip in my favor, won't it? No. That's not what grace does. What grace does is God gives us his favor. He gives us his love. He gives us that which we do not deserve. He gives us forgiveness and he gives us salvation. And because of grace... Salvation solves that equation that cannot be balanced. Now, it doesn't solve it the way your math teacher taught you to solve it. In fact, he solves it by obliterating it. He solves it by tipping the equation so far in his own favor that what we've done becomes nothing. What we've done becomes completely covered by the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That is what grace does. When God wants to give us his favor, when he's standing there with an open invitation, when he goes to the marketplace and says, what are you doing just standing around here? Well, no one hired us. And he says, well, come on in. I'll pay you what's fair. It's what's fair in his eyes. And what's fair in his eyes is that God gives us himself. He gives us his love. He gives us a relationship with him. He gives us his presence in our lives on a daily basis. Grace tips the equation so far that anything we've done becomes irrelevant, becomes so small and washed away because it's covered by who Jesus is and what he has done. Now today, you see the table set up at the front. Mac mentioned it before. We're going to celebrate in communion together because communion is this practice that Jesus gave to his disciples to say, do this in remembrance of me. This is the sign of the new covenant, the new kingdom, of everything that Jesus came to do is actually culminated in communion. The night before his execution, Jesus sets this in motion, says, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do to remember this covenant that I'm making with you, this covenant where I'm providing everything. This isn't a quid pro quo contract. This is I've come to do everything so that you can have a relationship with with God, so that you can come into the depth of a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus takes the elements. Uh, For us, we use grape juice and the bread. 
And he takes them and he says, these represent my body and my blood. This is the sacrifice that even though Jesus was sinless, even though he did not deserve death, he chose death. He chose the sacrifice so that we could have God's grace imparted on us. And so the way we take communion here is we want to invite you to come up as you feel ready, to pour yourself a bit of the juice, uh, take a piece of the bread. The bread on the silver trays is gluten-free if you need that. And I want to invite you just to take that back to your seat and take a moment and pray. Take a moment and thank Jesus for what he has done. And as you feel ready, take the elements. Um, I'm not going to come back up and pray and lead you through it. It's on your own. You can take that or pray with the people that you, you came with that you're beside. And after that, uh, we're going to have some music playing. The band's going to come up and, and lead us in another song. And this opportunity to kind of reflect on what God has done for us because of his grace. How his grace did solve everything. And, and one of the practices we do is every time we do communion, we pass the offering bags again. And it's our benevolent offering. This is an offering that is just an expression of saying, because we are so grateful for what God's given to us, we want to help others with. And so we don't keep any of this money. We use this money to help people in need in our community, in Brandon, in area, in whatever ways we can. And so I'm going to take a moment and pray, and I want to invite you to come up and take communion. God, your grace is overwhelming to us. We struggle to comprehend it because it breaks the patterns, it breaks the molds, it breaks all the ways that we think life should be because your concept of fairness is not our concept of fairness. And so, Lord, as we come to communion today, would you remind us of what you've done? Would you remind us of how you have made a way open for us to be in a deep relationship with you? And so in your name we pray, Jesus, thank you for what you've done Thank you for what you continue to do in our lives. And Lord, would we just continue to receive more and more of your grace and who you are in our lives on a regular basis. Amen. So folks, as you're ready, come and take the elements. When it comes down to grace, when it comes down to what God has done for us, what we've just celebrated and we've sung about together, I want to challenge you something. Don't do the math. Don't try and balance out when you show grace. Don't put a quota on it. Don't put a limit on it. Don't say that if I'm going to show grace, well, I need to receive grace. Because that's not how grace works. Grace is undeserved. Grace is unearned. It's unearnable. Grace is freely given. Grace is refreshing. But when we give grace. We need to find a way to overcome the piece of ourselves that finds it unsettling. We need to find a way to take that piece of ourselves that tries to sit on the equation and balance it to say, no, no, I'm not going to be gracious in this moment. We need to find a way to take that piece and let it go. So don't do the math. Just give grace. Last week, we talked about what grace is. This week, we talked about what grace does. And next week, we're going to talk about how we live out grace with each other, with our families, with everything we're going into this Christmas season. How do we live out grace? And so I want to invite you to be back here next Sunday. And next Sunday is the impact offering. This is an opportunity for us to show grace in a way to people that we may never see face to face. U-Turns Ministry in Brandon does amazing things. And these welcome hampers that they give to someone who's new when they step in to the U-Turn Ministry, they make a difference. Every U-turn staff I've spoken to has talked to me about how it is such a surprise 
to the U-turn residents that come in. Oftentimes, they've come in off the street or they've been couch surfing, and they've got maybe a backpack, and that's it. And they say, here, here's a laundry basket, and it's full. Here's new bedding. Here's hygiene items. Here's cleaning supplies. Here's a gift card for your first months of groceries. Because there is people in this city who believe in you and want you to succeed. That is powerful. And we don't get to see those face-to-face, but we're part of it when we do that. And the Jaffrey Project that our larger family of churches is doing is taking the message of Jesus, bringing access to Jesus to people groups where less than 2% of people have ever even heard the name Jesus. We want people to be led into a growing relationship with Jesus, and this is one of the ways we can do that beyond our sphere beyond our neighborhoods, beyond our communities, and reaching out into the world. So I want to encourage you to consider that, that next week we're going to have a special offering at the end of the service for the impact offering. But folks, let me just say a quick word of prayer for us, and we'll wrap it up for the morning. God, thank you so much for your grace, so much that you have given to us that we do not deserve. But we also know that there are so many people that you want to give your love to, that you are chasing and pursuing that don't know you yet. And so God, I pray that we as a community of faith would be first and foremost at showing your grace to others. And God, I pray that these ways that we're doing this to the impact offering, God, we don't know what you're going to do through those things, but we know you are going to do amazing things through that. And this is about releasing and providing opportunities for people to know you. And so Lord, thank you that we get to know you. And Lord, would you just do amazing things through us, through this community, through this city, through the world. In your name we pray. Amen. See you next week, folks. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.